Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, how are you at using church records to find your family history? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Sonny Morton. She's the author of a brand new book on finding your family history using church records. And she's got some tales to tell that she's found herself from many different denominations. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather, Connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And if you're new to the show, this is where we talk about techniques for finding your ancestors, gathering those stories, interesting information, extending your trees. There's so much to do, and it is so much fun. And one of those experts is is Sunny Morton. She has written a new book. It's all about finding your family history in church records. And she's got stories that she's found to go along with this. You're going to enjoy that. And right now, let's head out to Boston and check in with David Allen Lambert, who I know is eagerly sitting by the mail right now, because David, last week you told us you were getting a, a 19th century family Bible. Has that arrived yet? I got the Canada Post tracking number, and I'm actively clicking on it every hour on the hour <laughs> to see where it is where between is Alberta it? and Boston, where it's being sent to my work. Hmm. It looks like it will arrive early next week, ah, so okay. I'm very excited. And you'll be there at like 6 in the morning, right, just waiting for that I will be there waiting for the delivery. mailman to come out like a kid at a Christmas tree waiting for Santa to arrive yes. with my family Bible. That's going to be a lot of fun. Well, it's always hey. fun anytime you make a discovery, and I had another one this past week concerning my pirate ancestor that we've mm-hmm. talked about a little over the last year and a half. There's a guy in Rhode Island who's a great pirate researcher. His name is Jim Bailey. In fact, there was a, a great article written about him and some of his discoveries involving a slave ship in 1696 that came into Newport that was actually a cover for these pirates. And apparently my ancestor was on this ship. He's been doing more and more research about these pirates who escaped justice and found that one of them had some interesting stuff the widow did in her will. And he said, you might want to check out the will of his widow. And I'd never really thought much about it. And so I went and checked it out. And the second item she had in the will said, I give and bequeath to my daughter my East India silk gown. (laughs) Oh. Oh, really? Where do people get Get that in 1741, you know? And uh, not at the local mercantile. I can tell no. you that that sounds like pirate booty to me. Yeah, that's kind of the way I'm looking at it, too. So that was kind of interesting. She also had uh, a silk quilt and a long velvet hood that she was leaving her daughter. So very interesting items for the wife of an alleged pirate. Well, I'll tell you, since we're dealing with the 17th and 18th centuries, let's kind of stick there for our family history our news and go over to Devon, England. In Devonshire, of course, you know, the pilgrims left in 1620 from Plymouth. And in fact, in 1934, a commemorative set of steps was built in Plymouth to commemorate where the location was. It may not be where they think it is. And fact, you and I, Fish, can't even visit that location. Really? Because it's in the ladies' room at the Admiral McBride Pub. Underneath <laughs> the ladies' room at this pub is where the owner claims the actual steps are. That was the actual so, step-off point for the pilgrims getting mm-hmm. on the Mayflower. That's crazy. That's funny. Well, I... I mean, it makes sense. You'd want to use the facilities before a long ocean voyage. <laughs> right. Of course. Yes. 
I want to say that I love genealogy when it digs into the past, but also sometimes archaeological stories are what we'd like to talk about on the show. And there had been a rumor about an old ancient tunnel in Paisley in Scotland. Well, archaeologists found it. It's over 100 meters long, and it was built in the 1300s in this beautiful archway. It kind of looks like a cistern system, but they didn't know it was there, and arches are still intact after over 800 years. Wow. It's amazing. So you just never know what lies under the streets. Maybe they'll find somebody's ancestor. (laughs) Well, let's go forward a little bit into current days. You've heard about that face app that's trending on the Internet. Oh, yeah, it's all over the place. In fact, I got a a picture of my son at age 70. (laughs) And (laughs) it was really interesting because I looked at it and I thought, you know what? That is what he's going to look like. (laughs) Well, you know, that's true. And a lot of people are using, in fact, my wife took a photograph of me with American flags in my hat. But now we're understanding that is a Russian-developed app that may be able to hack into your Facebook photos and you might get ransomware and all this sort of thing. So if you've used it, that's fine. Delete it now is my advice, my tech advice. (laughs) It looks like it's causing problems. But yeah, I now look like the brother of the 87-year-old cousin of my mother who's sending me the Bible. So I thought to myself, I said, (laughs) here, look, I look just like your dad. (laughs) That's Oh, you just never know what you're going to find. No. One of the things that I love is breaking news. And Sharemark genealogist Melanie McComb, who we have work here, passed something under my nose right before we went on the air. I hope that you haven't recently ordered an English probate after 1857 from probate search, got services, .gov.uk, because find a will, as it's commonly known as, has gone in price from £10 a search to £1.50 a search. Wow, which is nothing. That's a really Um, good deal. It really is. So if you have any later UK family after 1857 that left the will, go check it out now and order up accordingly. All right. Thank you very much, David. And of course, he's going to be back for our Ask Us Anything segment at the back end of the show. Very excited to have my good friend Sonny Morton back on the phone with us today. Hi, Sonny. How are you? Hi, Scott. I'm so excited to be here today. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you. She has written a new book called How to Find Your Family History in U.S. Church Records, A Genealogist's Guide. And, you know, we always hear from listeners saying, how do I get started? What are some of the primary records? Well, obviously, there's the census records. And then there are things like this, because they often, well, they always do, really. They precede many of the vital records, the birth, death, and marriage records that you would order from government sources. And I guess I'm looking at this thing. It's it's pretty lengthy and pretty detailed and covers so many different denominations. My first question is, Sonny, how in the world did you have time to do all of this, compile all this information? It's incredible. You know, Scott, I wish I had a better answer than I don't know. (laughs) How do you find time to do the things that really matter to you? This was a labor of love. I came across church records. My sort of glory hallelujah conversion church records (laughs) happened several years ago when I was volunteering here in Cleveland, Ohio, at an archive, and I started inventorying all their old church records from lots of different denominations, and I was stunned the kind of stuff that had in them. I was already teaching people how to do their genealogy, and nobody was really talking much about church records and how to find them. And so it really became a, a passion for me, especially once I started having my own discoveries in church records. And then you better believe I was 
ready to convert everyone to using church records. And so it's taken a long time to get it suppressed, and I couldn't invent it without my co-author, Harold Henderson. But as a team, we worked through the last um, several stages of the book's publication, and Genealogical Publishing was super patient and super responsive because they felt like it was a really important thing to get out there. They feel like it covers a gap that we've had in our genealogical education, is looking at the church records, not from Germany or from other countries, but here in the United States where there's a strong tradition of churches and record-keeping. Boy, and it covers so much ground, and a lot of it just isn't digitized yet, right? Because, I mean, each congregation is just usually a pretty small group, and maybe you can get some larger group records. But on the whole, uh, we usually see the government records first, but these are kind of the hidden nuggets. I myself discovered something similar uh, with New York with Methodist marriages back in the 90s, and I published two volumes of those, 40 1,000 marriages in there that a lot of people have used, and I'm just looking at this thinking, wow, this is great to see how each denomination is going to work on its own. You were mentioning that you had your own experience there. What, what was it that you found using church records? Well, okay, I'll give you a story. Okay. And this is tracing my husband's line, and this is the Ohatniki family, and I know that the name Ohatniki sounds like a nice Irish family, but it's not. It's actually a Slovakian family. They were immigrants in the little borough of Oliphant in Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania. And I was researching them. I was not quite a baby researcher, but I was probably a teenage researcher. Okay, <laughs> you know how yeah, you can yeah. kind of right. characterize your growing up years as a researcher. So I had found some great things on this family, but I was I was really stuck. So Andrew and Rose were my primary couple of interests, and I started pushing back a generation to Andrew's parents. I knew they were immigrants. Um, I knew they originally spelled their name with C's and Z's, not like the easy way that I was looking at it. And I couldn't figure out exactly where they were from. Uh, The census just told me the country. The dad's naturalization papers just told me the country. I couldn't find a passenger list entry that I was for sure about for either parent. Right. I had some that I was like, well, this could be them, but I don't want to go down the wrong track. So I got desperate enough that I actually started cold calling people named Ohatniki in the Oliphant area. (laughs) I don't know if you've done that before. No, that's pretty desperate, though. Yeah, amazing. I was pretty desperate. But they still had the same first names that were in the family tree 100 years ago. So I'm like, they've got to be related. So they passed me off pretty quickly to an elderly aunt, the people that I talked to. And she was kind enough to talk to me, and she sent me things that I didn't know, but she didn't know that all-important detail, where exactly was the family from. So I finally, I got really desperate, and I was just like, well, where did they all go to church? And she paused for a second and then acted like she was a little annoyed, almost acting like I was kind of stupid. She's like, well, they went to Holy Ghost Parish, of course. <laughs> and I was I'm like, well, yeah, of course. Of I'm course. sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all knew that. Yeah, of course. I knew that. How could that slip my mind? So I was very grateful, though, that she would tell me that detail, and it turned out to be crucial. So the first thing I did, of course, was to Google Holy Ghost Parish in Alassane, Pennsylvania, because that's where a lot of my questions start at the broadest range. And I came across a website that had a little one page history. And it said that the first Slovak Catholic Church in this area said a little history of them. It said that the early parishioners were immigrants from like five different counties in what used to be Hungary. And so it gave me specific names of places. 
and I started salivating a little bit. <laughs> and then it had this great story. It said 21 dedicated Slovak families pioneered the effort to establish a parish. During the summer of 1888, they, along with Slovak families from Forest City to Taylor, spearheaded a combined effort to solicit funds for a church. The little frame church was erected by the strength and sweat of men after their regular day's work. This group dug with picks and shovel often well beyond midnight until the excavation was completed and the stone foundation placed. Wow. And then it goes on to say when the cornerstone was put in place and, and they celebrated the first high mass on Christmas Day of 1888. So you got a lovely story there. I do. And of course, I'm like, well, were my Ohatnikis part of this pioneering group of families? And so suddenly I, I really want to find the connection here. So I was able, when I, I Googled and found the website, I was able to reach out to the church. And during this time that I was corresponding with them, they were merging with another parish just down the street. This, this was the Slovakian ethnic parish that was merging with the Irish parish down the street. And this is fairly common. You'll find this in all denominations. Right. They're very similar churches, maybe the same denomination or a very similar denomination who fall on hard times or their members migrate out. And so they end up combining forces. So that's what they were doing. And I was able to talk to the new parish administrators and I started ordering some records from them. I it took a while. I had to be patient, and I had to be really polite, and I spent my money. And But gradually, I got both genealogical information and a great story. I got baptismal certificates for Andrew and Rose's kids. I got burial and marriage information on a lot of his kids and his siblings. And going back to the immigration generation that I really wanted to find, I found baptismal certificates for their kids, so Andrew's siblings. Andrews was interesting because he was born right there in Alison. He was baptized just two years after the church was completed. So I'm like, okay, come on, they had to have been there. I can place them <laughs> two years. I, I'm getting closer, right? So the evidence that the, the family would have belonged to this little community, because I didn't have any exact date of arrival for them. But even more crucial was the baptismal certificates of his siblings. These confused me a little bit because it said that they were born in little towns in Slovakia, and I, that I couldn't pronounce, but of course my heart was just like, oh, I have a, I have a hometown. And then I realized that the certificates also said that they were baptized a day or two later in Pennsylvania. Huh. That's exactly what I said. So that's, that's even less probable in the 1890s than it is today, right? <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird. <laughs> you Did they take the a flight or something? Right. Exactly. So I wondered what kind of mistake this was, but I also wondered if it was a really fortuitous one. Did it mean that there was a parent's birthplace right. there in that record that I just didn't know about? Because they were only sending me typed certificates. I wasn't sure. seeing the original image. So I called them, and I was really grateful. They went back into the records, and they looked at them, and they're like, oh, yeah, that's the parent's birthplace. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> right. Well, but the fact that you recognized it says a lot right there that was really important. And, and you know, that, that's the thing when anybody's doing this stuff, that they have to take transcripts, especially with a grain of salt, and even the original records, because you don't know if the record keeper fully understood what somebody was saying or they didn't misinterpret it or something. Right. That's absolutely true. You, you have to pay attention to what you're looking at and think from a common sense point of view. What it's saying to me, is that even really possible? And if it's not possible, then what could have gone wrong? 
in the process of giving me this information. What could possibly have not, gone not, wrong? Exactly. <laughs> did they transcribe it wrong initially? Did they, or they, did they write it wrong initially? Did they write it wrong just for me when they made me the certificate? So, yeah, you just have to kind of think it through. But I, you can imagine me. I was doing all kinds of happy dances. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Cartwheels in the hall. And yeah, I right. understand how that stuff works. And it's, it is fun. And it's very difficult in many cases for many families to get across the pond. And these church records are, are great for that and all kinds of other information. So it sounds to me overall, uh, Sonny, you've had a lot of success in identifying uh, people and their, their ethnic origins, which often are very difficult to do. Uh, in standard government records, right? That's absolutely true. Those overseas birthplaces. In fact, there was a study that was published several years ago of German American church records saying that the overseas exact hometown appears in up to 75% of those German American church records. Oh, wow. It's way more than it appears in any other kind of resource that we would normally go look for it in. So especially for that immigrant transition generation, Church records can be incredibly powerful. And, uh, Sonny, I was going through this, and your list here is, what do you got, like a dozen different denominations and what can be found in those. And you've got samples of them and pictures of them. And I'm thinking this is just invaluable stuff. Of the 12 denominations, which ones would you say are the most valuable? In other words, which ones are you hoping your ancestors belong to, right? So really, so we get to pick the churches that we, we hope they belong to. That's yeah. awesome. I would say I would love to find Quaker ancestors yes. because their records are so rich in terms of their daily lives. And I once looked at a Quaker marriage record that the entire record was two manuscript pages long because it listed every single person who was present at oh, the wow. ceremony. And it listed the entire marriage vow. And it listed all of the grooms and the brides, their, not just their names and residences, but also the parents and where they were from and if they were still living. And this was a very strong community. And they recorded a lot of detail about the community. Yes. They also typically say where they came from previously. Yeah. So you could follow the different congregations as they went from place to place over time, which is hugely invaluable. And by the way, for those people who are wondering, well, where do the stories come from for the family? Boy, when you find something like direct quotes of exactly what the marriage Val was boy, what a great detail for a family history. That's a great story. Yeah. Well, and another aspect to consider is it's not just what are really good genealogically kept records, but also what's online. And Ancestry.com, just one collection of their Quaker records is over six million records. I think about not only what are the good records, but what are the records that are easy for me to get hold of. And the same thing with the Dutch Reformed Church, a lot of really great records, yep. especially if you can start to read the language, not intimidated by that, and those are online. A lot of great Methodist and Lutheran records. Ancestry is in the process of bringing millions of Methodist records, mostly from the Midwest, online, and that's a growing amount. I love the Roman Catholic records, but I just was telling that story about the Ohotnikis, where there's so much in these sacramental records, and they're kept pretty reliably. So a lot of churches, you like you hope that you can find the church, and you hope that you can find the records somewhere at the church or at another nearby archive or something like that. But pretty much in the Catholic Church, if the parish is still open, the records should be there or at their diocesan archive. So, yeah, you just have to learn to interpret the Latin yeah, version just, of people's names, though, yeah. right? <laughs> and you just have to, to hope that they transcribe the certificate correctly. <laughs> 
so, I mean, there's caveats for each one of these, but there's a lot of them that are really strong in terms of and really, really promising. Yeah, I guess it's not fair to only focus on the ones that are online because, like I mentioned when I started looking for Holy Ghost Parish, the first thing I did was Google it. And even though I didn't find the records online, I found the place to look for the records online. Right. And I found the, that short little history that I read about the pioneering families. So there's often a lot to find online, even if the records themselves haven't been imaged and indexed on your favorite genealogy website. Right. And I'm sure a lot of people are very helpful back at these uh, various parishes and churches in providing you copies of those records. I, I had a situation a week or two ago where I found online that there was a deed involving a couple of ancestors. And I reached out to the archive and somebody just went and took their cell phone and snapped a couple of pictures and texted them to me the next day. <laughs> thinking, how cool is this? That's you know? fantastic. And yeah. archives, you know, they're, they're in the business of providing this kind of information. So archives and libraries are a wonderful place to find old church records. When you start to get to the ministerial offices, like if you're actually talking to the parish or the church congregational office that's still in business, um, I think it's important for us to remember that their priorities are the living. Like yeah. they care about the couple who's in crisis down the street or the funeral sermon they're going to be preaching the next day or the luncheon they're hosting or whatever. So we shouldn't exactly. be demanding things from them saying, hey, I want nope. this right now today nope. by five o'clock, close of business. Exactly. We should be patient. <laughs> we, should, we should understand these are not public records. They do not have to release them to us. And we should understand that they're a nonprofit who doesn't necessarily need to invest any time or effort into our request. So it really helps to grease the wheels when you send a donation check to the church. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thought on this, too, is that if somehow we provide a bad experience for them, we have uh, kind of fouled things up for people who come after us that may want to reach out to them for records. That's absolutely true. So I always say, please, you know, be respectful when you reach out, be brief with your requests and be precise. Don't say, please see if you can find the name of my ancestor in any of the volumes of your old histories or anything like that. Yeah. Right? So and it's important to understand what the histories and the mergings are of many of these mm -hmm. places. A lot of these churches have their histories online that's really easy to find just through a Google search in old books. That's an easy starting point as well. It is an easy starting point to start online, and you should take advantage of every single bit of clues that you can find as to how this church may have evolved over time in its name or its union with another church. But sometimes it's easy to sort of like, well, you know, maybe my ancestor was a pilgrim. I can't call like the first pilgrim church national <laughs> headquarters today, right? There's no such church. Right. Well, what happened to the pilgrims? And so you actually have to look at things called denominational trees, which I talk about in my book a lot. And I refer everybody to all the ones that I have found online. Okay, this is a family tree of those who participated in, you know, what became the Congregational Church in New England. If they belong to this part of the church, they later affiliated with this church and others affiliated with another one. And so it helps you go to the right archives and repositories to ask the questions if you're looking for churches that may no longer exist or may no longer exist under the same name. So, Sonny, when I look at uh, all these denominations here on your part two list, and it's a really healthy long list with lots of great images uh, as examples here, which denomination would you say carries the least information typically? And I know it'll vary from place to place and which time periods and all that, but generally speaking. So 
throw somebody under the bus. Man, <laughs> you didn't throw them under the bus. You're, you've got them no, in the book okay. here. The, the ones that are that are probably genealogically the least reliable to exist and then to be more findable mm-hmm. by researchers and then to have genealogically information in them, I would have to say that it's Baptist records. Of all the different Baptist traditions, whether you're talking about Southern Baptist or some of the African Baptist traditions, I would say that the record-keeping tradition wasn't as high a priority mm-hmm. in the Baptist faiths as it would have been for some of these other church. The priority was really more on the religious community, the religious experience, helping other people have a religious experience. And so it was different in that, by and large, historically, a lot of Baptists didn't necessarily live in urban centers where they had a lot of educational opportunities. There was just a lesser emphasis on record-keeping itself. So if you were to say, well, but they're Baptists, I could find a baptismal record. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, it would, it would be awesome. But you have to understand that Baptists practice believer baptism of older people. So when you find a baptismal record, you can't use it as a surrogate for a birth record like you could for, say, a newborn Catholic child. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Scott. I really enjoyed talking to you. And it's time for our Ask Us Anything segment. And I love this, David, because we get so many great questions, like this one from Nita in Milwaukee. This is actually addressed to me, and she said, Fisher, you mentioned in your visit with Sonny that you had this book on New York marriages. How would you know which church my New York City ancestor got married in? And that's a great question. You know, how do you know which church they belong to so you can search those church records and not just see it necessarily in an index? Well, that's something that we even do here in Beantown. I mean, any urban area is a lot easier. Smaller towns, you can usually have a handpick of under five ministers or clergy of any sort. But in the cities, you're dealing with dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds. So city directories are my go-to. Well, the thing is, is you first of all have to get the marriage certificate of your person and Mm -hmm. find out the name of the minister. Correct. Then once you have the name of the minister, then you can do what you're talking about. Try to figure out what church that person was associated with. And what's really interesting, too, about it, it's not just finding out what's in the church records about that couple, but often there are other family members within that same church. And that's how I broke open one particular line from England as I recognized the name of a cousin that had been mentioned in some family notes. And mm-hmm. that allowed me to go back and find who their people were, which were my people's people. And suddenly the line was broken after 20 years. It was a big deal because of that church record. Occasionally, you can even find portraits or photographs of the person who performed the ceremony. In the case of Parson Caleb Bradley up in Stroudwater, Maine, he married my third great-grandparents back in 1808. I have no photographs of them or paintings, but there's a photograph of him. But he also left a diary. And if you ever want to find the true stories of how the clergy felt about your family, seek out those diaries that are not in the church records. Well, now, wait, wait. What, what did this guy have to say about your family, oh, David? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, not to quote it exactly, but it's something along the lines that Parson Bradley was asked to admire one of the latest children in my third great-grandparents' large family. And he said something along the line of, I would rather admire another barrel of flower in that house than another child in that brood. And I'm like, okay. Wow. 
Isn't that funny? But what a great little ditty. And, you know, this is the thing. When you're writing histories, you could get a photograph of the person who married your ancestors, even if you don't Mm -hmm. have pictures of them. I've done the same thing, David. I have several pictures. And these pictures from the 19th century, they're out of copyright. And so you can use those as you put your histories together. Photographs of the churches, some still stand, some are gone. And mm-hmm. then you get things like you just quoted there, which is absolutely priceless. Obviously, there was just a little bit of enmity between uh, their minister and, and this particular family. It's true. And occasionally, you know, you seek out these photographs from universities or the church might have it itself or flea markets. I was with the photo detective Maureen Taylor seeking out photographs for the book we worked on the last muster. And a person had a box of old CDVs, the old paper photographs, cartridge receipts from the 1860s. And I recognized one of them. Man poring over a book was the same photograph I had paid 10 years before from a university. I now own a photograph of the man who married my great-great-grandparents in 1844. It didn't say his name on it. I just remembered what the picture looked like, and it matched up 100%. Oh, wow. So you had an original photo now. I do, yeah. Wow. And how much did you have to pay for that? Five bucks. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't that I great? paid more for the copy of the picture from Harvard University. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Nita. Hope that answers your question. And, uh, David, we have a question from Tom. He's in Tuscaloosa. And he says, David, why was my ancestor listed under spam for his military service? That That's a unique question, and I have no idea what he's talking about. Do you? Probably is the 1930 census where they ask what military service or war were you participating in. They use acronyms. So like the Civil War is CW or WOR for War of the Rebellion. World War One, of course, is still just World War or the Great War. Mm-hmm. And then you get IW, Indian Wars. But yeah, for the Spanish-American War, <laughs> the acronym is SPAM. No. <laughs> Yeah, that's probably what it's coming from, or somebody had an abbreviation that they couldn't fit it on a card. And then, of course, you have PI, which is for the Philippine insurrection, which was immediately following the Spanish-American War. So that's probably what you've got, Tom. It's probably not his dietary concerns, but his military (laughs) service in 1898. Well, I don't think they had any dietary spam back in 1930, did they? Maybe they did. No, they were probably still doing hardtack at the yeah, something like yeah, that. Heart attack and cold coffee. Were, were, uh, and these, were, uh, were, were these acronyms used universally through government records or just in the 1930 census? Uh, well, I mean, I'm sure anybody abbreviates anything under the, you know, World War One has always been WW1 before World War Two was just the World War or WW or GW for Great War. So I think people are just trying to shorten up the amount of word count that they have, and they may sure. have had a form or something. And in the census, you know, it's a very small little column, so whatever you could squeeze in there, and of course trying to spell out Spanish-American War uh, <laughs> is probably not going to no. cut it. So that, that makes sense that that's probably where it's pencil. I did have somebody asked me the same question a long time ago in regards to something in the census, and they said, what does that mean? I said, well, it's not food. (laughs) No, that's right. Well, I know that in New York, for instance, in 1890, they did a census of the Civil War vets. Mm-hmm. And, there, you know, there's all kinds of interesting information. I'm sure that they had to shorten a lot of things for these various little columns they make in, in overall accounting of individuals and what they did in military service. 
All right. Imagine if you had to spell out the 101st New York Artillery or something like that. Yeah. So you're going to get 101 NYART. I mean, well, whatever really, fits. It is important yeah. then for people to, to figure out what some of these acronyms mean when they run across them. And most of that, I would imagine, is simply available online, right? It really is. In fact, uh, it's also a good topic for Ask Us Anything. So you can reach out to me at any time you have any military acronym questions. I'm more than happy to engage you. Yeah, absolutely. Not militarily, of course. Not militarily. We know we're not a violent show here. No, right. no. Family friendly. Absolutely. And by the way, if you have any questions at all for Ask Us Anything, it's really easy to ask us anything. You just email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. And we'll be happy to consider your question. And, of course, we have a variety of experts who come on, so it really doesn't matter what the topic is. Ask away. We're happy to help. And, uh, David, thanks so much for coming on again, and we'll catch you again next week. And good luck with the Bible once again. Thank you, sir. Well, we have reached the threshold of the end of the show. And thanks so much for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the stories about the Scottish tunnel that's been found deep underneath the old country. And, of course, the Mayflower steps that may actually be under a women's room in a pub. You can't make this stuff up. And, of course, thanks so much to Sunny Morton, who has come on talking about her brand new book to help you find your family history in church records. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.